Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Welcome, everybody, to the fifth episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I bring you guys what's going on in the financial markets, the economy, and new things going on in the financial planning world. So today is Thursday, July 25th, um, and we're right in the heart of earnings season, so it's been a pretty active couple of weeks here, Matt. I love it. I mean, this is the busiest week for reporting you have a ton in the morning, ton in the afternoon, makes the day exciting. I love weeks like this. Yeah, it is. It's fun. It's fun. So as always, I'm going to just start and take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and year of the major indexes that we track. And these are as of last night's close, which was July 24th. So the S&P 500 index was up 2.64% for the month and up 20.45% for the year. The Dow Jones Industrial Average was up 2.64 for the month and up 18.45% for the year. The NASDAQ Composite, uh, the Tech Heavy Index, was up 3.94% for the month and 25.41% for the year. So tech, um, again, having another strong year. Um, The IWM ETF, uh, which is the ETF that tracks the Russell 2000, is up 1.13% for the month and up 18.17% for the year. Uh, The International Index X United States is up 0.21% for the month and up 12.69% for the year. So continuing this trend, Matt, of underperformance internationally compared to the U.S. And just this morning... Um, the European Central Bank that they're going to start rate cuts again to go below zero um, in addition to the U.S. possibly cutting rates uh, this month. They're trying to push that money through the monetary system, right? They don't want people saving it. They want them investing it, spending it, right? and that's part of that goal. I got a um, tidbit here in a bit that talks about the money multiplier, in essence, how much money's flowing through the system, and it's, it's not going to be a good statistic. Yeah, yeah. So moving on to treasury yields, uh, the three-month treasury yield is currently sitting at 2.1%, the two-year treasury at 1.83%, and the 10-year treasury at 2.05%. So I know earlier this week, Matt, we briefly uninverted, which meant that the 10-year was yielding more than the three-month, but now we're back to kind of an inverted yield curve. So just another piece yep. um, to mention there. Um, so as I talked about uh, beginning the podcast, we're right in the heart of earnings season right now. So um, it only makes sense for our headlines, current events subjects to be centralized around earnings. And I just wanted to mention a few reports from some of the big names um, that have already reported um, as of uh, last night. Um, so first, Netflix reported earlier this week, and um, they have dropped a little more than 12% since reporting earnings um, Excuse me, last Thursday after subscriber data came in well below Wall Street expectations. Um, so they're starting to see more and more competition with all of the new direct streaming services, I think. Um, that they're not really the only bully on the block anymore. Exactly. I mean, their saturation in the U.S. especially 
is there. So the growth in, say, subscribers, not there like it used to be. Yeah, and there's right? a lot of fight for comp- for um, um, a lot of competition for. Um, movies and uh, content, excuse me, that's where I was trying to find. Absolutely. I mean, everyone's got deep pockets these days, right? So you have the uh, non-traditional players like Netflix and Amazon, and then you have the traditional content makers like the Disneys of the world who are saying, you know what? Might not be the best idea for me to put my content on Netflix or Amazon. I think we might just do our own thing. Yeah, and it helps that Disney owns a majority stake in Hulu, and I've heard rumblings that eventually they're going to own all of it. Um, so they're going to have uh, a bigger uh, audience, per se, to get their own content out there instead of selling it to someone like We Netflix. see the, the cord cutting, people getting rid of satellite, cable, and going streaming. We, we see these companies, yeah. right? You talk to friends and family, you hear about people doing it. But then when you see it in the earnings, you know this is not just a short-term fad. Yeah, yeah I agree with that. Um, Facebook reported last night, and they're currently up approximately 2.3% pre-market um, after beating expectations again with its Q2 earnings and revenue announcement, um, and that was primarily driven by sharp gains in ad revenues. So mobile ad revenues rose to 94% of all revenue. Mobile. Mobile. So that just goes to show you how many people are tied to their phones these days with social social media sites, right? Absolutely. Um, and then Facebook also estimated that 2.1 billion people now use the service family of Facebook, which includes Instagram, WhatsApp, or Messenger, every day on average. Every day. Every day. And more than 2.7 billion people use one of those apps each month. Pretty crazy numbers. That's impressive. <laughs> um, so Facebook um, up uh, pre-market this morning, even with the uh, Federal Trade Commission fine that they have to pay. I think it was around $5 billion or something like that, Matt. But um, for Facebook, that's really kind of a drop in the bucket, I would think. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's all relative, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, for them, it's probably not that big of a deal. Yeah. Moving on to Boeing. Um, So Boeing reported a pretty big earnings loss for the second quarter of almost $6 per share. Um, Now, this was anticipated as the 737 MAX planes have been grounded for quite some time. And guidance for the rest of the year um, is going to be issued at a later date due to the uncertainty of how much longer the 737 MAX will be grounded. Um, So at this point, I believe or I've heard that they've fixed most of the mechanical problems, and right now it's just a political fight. That's kind of the rumblings I I hear as well. And the thing you got to remember with Boeing, it, a part of the Dow 30, is the highest priced stock in that 30 stock basket, Mm -hmm. and it's a price-weighted index. So why is that important to the market? Yeah, exactly. Yep. So, you know, it takes a lot easier for Boeing to move a dollar than it is a smaller stock that's priced at $50 a share. So I think it's important that we kind of recap that, you know, why is Amazon important? Why is Netflix important? Why are we bringing these names up, right? Yeah, because they're a large part of, of these big indexes where so many people are investing in these exchange-traded funds that, you know, track these indexes and... <clears throat> you know, the more people pile money into these funds, the the bigger and bigger these companies get, and they mean more to the market than 
um, say, a smaller company like T-Mobile does. That's right. So what happens is, is disproportionately, when money flows into these index funds, they're disproportionately going into these larger cap stocks. And that is why it is important to kind of track them because that's where the money flow's going, right? Right. And then the opposite happens. You know, you take a fourth quarter like last year where you had just selling across the board in these index funds. Those big names got hit the most. And even if they had, say, less exposure to, say, international trade concerns, they still got sold. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that's where I think active managers, like the way our firm manages money, that's where we can shine. Right. Right. Um, so moving on to Tesla, Tesla seemed to have a pretty ugly report last night, and they're down just over 11% uh, pre-market uh, this morning after they reported earnings last night. So their Q2 gap EPS uh, was negative $2.31, and they uh, missed estimates by $0.68. Cents. Revenue of six point three five billion missed estimates by ninety million. Um, so a pretty ugly report from Tesla last night. Um, and you know, Matt, we've heard the same empty promises. I guess is a good way to ex- explain it from Elon Musk for quite some time now. And he did it again last night on the earnings call when he mentioned that the company is really, really close to profitability. But I feel like he says this every quarter and. It still hasn't come true. Oh my gosh! How many times have we heard we were so close to profitability? <laughs> and just you know, it's tough to be profitable, you know, in that business. But especially with the debt load that they have now, um, I think you know it's just going to be very tough for Tesla to kind of navigate these waters of of maintaining profitability and getting rid of their debt load. Yeah, and you know, this is not um, exactly a small position in the NASDAQ 100 index. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And so this is definitely something to kind of monitor from afar. And um, I just want to remind listeners that there's a difference at times. We can't give an official opinion on the podcast on Tesla. I'll just say this there's a difference between a good company and a good stock. Right, because the product is great. Tesla, I, th- I personally think that Tesla I've owned cars one in the past. Are, yeah. I've owned two. I think they're great. And they're great. They're really cool. And, yeah. Um, you know, electric cars are the new thing. Um, but like Matt said, you know, that doesn't necessarily translate to a good a good stock or a financially sound company all the time. Yeah. So that's I guess that's the best way to to leave that. Yeah. And then tonight we have some heavy hitters um, reporting after the bell, and that's primarily Google and Amazon are the big headliners in terms of earning reports tonight. I can't wait. Um, So we're going to be watching those numbers pretty closely as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially after Amazon's big prime day. Yeah. Yeah. The extension to 48 hours from 36 hours. I think they said something along the lines of it beat um, revenues for a combination of last Black Friday and Cyber Monday. Yeah. It's pretty and they beat huge. it in the summer. It's pretty huge. Wow. I mean, it almost feels like that everyone I talk to these days has Amazon Prime. You know, they pay the, what is it, $120 per year. Yep. And um, just because it's so simple. Oh, you yeah. Know, Turnkey. Yeah. Right? That's what people are looking for. I mean, when's the last time you actually price shop something when you were buying it on Amazon? <laughs> yeah, I can't, can't think of That's it. That's exactly what they want. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Capitalism at its best. So um, moving on to um, articles and tweets and research from the week that we found interesting. 
Um, the first was just a little snippet from a Wall Street Journal article titled, After U.S. Tax Overhaul, Corporate Rates Fall But Unevenly. And this was by Theo Francis and Richard Rubin. And the one thing that they mention in this article is that caught my eye that says, the lower rates follow tax law changes Congress passed at the end of 2017. Since then, the journal analysis shows the median effective global tax rate for S&P 500 companies declined to 19.8% in the first quarter of 2019, from 25.5% two years earlier. So I just wanted to mention this map because I believe this is what the market is going to be focusing on in the 2020 election year. The question is going to be, is corporate tax reform going to stick around if Trump doesn't win? And if corporate tax reform doesn't stick around, I don't think Wall Street is going to like that. And again, this is purely from a market standpoint, taking politics completely out of it. But these companies have already planned their budgets for years and years forward. And if they have to redo all of that, um, you know, the, this corporate tax reform was dropping right to the bottom line of these companies. And I think that's been a major driver of the market the past couple of years. Absolutely, Mark. I mean, you got to think about it. Corporate tax rate goes from 35 to 20%. So with that 15%, what have they been doing with it? Buying back stock, raising dividends, retiring debt, uh, buying other companies, hiring, investing in um, improvements in productivity, right? Keep going down the list. Yeah. And you're right. I mean, this, in my view, and I know you agree, the first half of next year, this is going to be the big concern for the market. So if you're in the CEO suite or the C-suite of all these Fortune 500 companies at the end of the year, and they're doing their revised capital budget for 2020, what's the first thing they're going to say in that meeting? Well, we might actually want to start hoarding cash a little bit because you know what? We don't know what corporate taxation is going to be in a year mm-hmm. or what the policy is going to be on it. Yeah, we're going to get more conservative. And that's that hesitation that I think should be a legitimate concern for investors. Yeah. So that's why, you know, the first half of 2020, um, our viewpoint is it could be a little challenging um, just due to the fact that um, corporate tax reform has been such a big part of, of the market gain, I believe, uh, the past few years. Absolutely. Um, The next article um, is another Wall Street Journal article uh, titled Tech Rally Powers Record Gains for Stocks. And this is by Amrith uh, Rakumar. And this was back on July 21st. And this kind of goes back to what Matt was talking about earlier, why we were mentioning some of those big uh, companies that reported earnings. Um, So he says, together, Microsoft, Apple, Amazon and Facebook have accounted for 19% of the S&P 500's total return this year, according to S&P Dow Jones indices data through Thursday. That rate is roughly in line with contributions made by the biggest tech stocks in 2017 and much of last year, before the fourth quarter reversal helped royal markets. So, I mean, Matt, this is the fifth of the S&P's return this year being driven by four companies. Think about that. You know, so I think the perception, or I should say the misperception by investors is that S&P 500 is 500 names. Oh, Mark, I'm diversified. Because they assume that it's equally weighted. That's the perception. And it's a market cap weighted index. Mm -hmm. And when you have very few names at the very, very top that are pretty much wagging the tail, um, 
it's dangerous. And I think that people need to be aware that it's not, it is 500 names, but the 500 names are not equally represented. Yeah, I agree with that. And then to follow that up, um, Amrith says, the concentrated gains contrast with much of the market. Seven of the S&P's 500 11 sectors remain solidly below records and shares of small companies that stand to benefit if the Fed cuts interest rates are well below their recent peaks. So also the most heavily weighted companies and industries are the ones driving the performance so far this year. And it's not necessarily spread out across all industries uh, in the market. Yep. I mean, I think it just goes to show you that, um, you know, at times, when you know the fad right now is is indexing and you have the herd mentality and everyone's doing the same thing it's going to continue to pump up a lot of these higher weighting names in these indices and us as active managers we're kind of aware of that phenomenon because like a tide it can go both ways mm-hmm. that's that the best way to say it yeah yeah for sure because then i mean you know you build up you know the top companies and all these indexes just to when the market does fall or gets rained they in, they get hit the hardest. They're going to get fall. Yeah, they're going to fall harder. So, and the last point from this article um, that really I thought was interesting because this wasn't the case um, even just two years ago. Um, he says that fears that trade tensions will slow global growth have kept many investors cautious, pushing them towards the Fang stocks: Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and Google as well as Microsoft. Many view these firms as less dependent on economic activity and attractive because they tend to participate in hot areas for investment, such as cloud computing and artificial intelligence. So it's almost like investors are flocking to these companies as kind of a safety net, Matt. It's just interesting. You know, it's (laughs) like, you know, we go through, you know, decades where the perceived safety names or the sectors change based upon just technology, right? And the market is telling you that some of these select tech names are viewed, say, more consistent in their earnings than maybe the, a traditional cyclical industrial, which... You know, a couple of decades ago, those were the safe havens. Yeah, exactly. Like, relative to other yeah, stocks. Yeah, and companies like Procter and Gamble and McDonald's. But it'll be interesting to see, you know, if you know five or ten years down the road that investors still flock to these core fang names um, as a way of safety because of how of how strong their their businesses are and if they're recession proof or not. Yeah, I mean, the best way to say it, in my view, is there's no sacred cows. So you can go back 20, 30 years ago, and no one would believe. I guess, the current state of an IBM or a GE relative to their dominance um, 20, 30 years ago. So I think it would be naive to sit there and say that, you know, the names that make up this FANG index are going to be just as strong or just as much leaders 20 or 30 years from now. I, I think that would be naive to say, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. And the last thing I just wanted to mention is that I know uh, Matt and I spoke on this a couple of podcast episodes ago that if companies miss earnings estimates, they're going to blame it on tariffs and on the trade war. And yep. um, I was just scrolling across CNBC earlier this week and caught this headline that said, more than 30% of U.S. companies that have reported so far are blaming tariffs for disappointing Q2 profits. 
So this just goes to show you that, you know, if companies come in weaker than expected, they're going to try to cushion that as much as they can, whether, and I mean, some companies, I I agree that, you know, it is hurting Could be legit. Absolutely. Absolutely. But, you know, there's, there's some companies that, that have, in my view, nothing to do with it, but it's the token excuse. They're going to milk that until the cows come home. That's the perfect excuse. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Hey, we didn't really execute. Can't say that. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> we can't say that. Um, all right. I got a couple things, Mark. Yeah. So um, first thing is going to be um, railroad earnings. But to me, it kind of ties into the overall state of the economy. So this uh, bit of research is from Bespoke Investment Group, and this was from um, July 18th, okay? And I'm going to read a couple of things verbatim. It says, quote, yesterday, a drop from CSX drove the biggest decline in the S&P 1500, the railroads relative to the broader market since 2008, and the third largest relative decline since our data starts at the end of 1994. It goes on to say the real concern was guidance, I'm still quoting, where the company cut its revenue forecast. CSX now sees annual revenues down between 1% to 2%, that's negative, versus a prior guidance of low single-digit revenue growth for the year of 2019. Factors cited include weaker industrial activity, weaker coal exports, and a slow drift lower in broad activity. That's all a quote, Mark. So you got to read the tea leaves. You know, the railroads are moving a lot of these goods. And so this data is important. Now, there's one more thing in this article that I think is noteworthy. I'm quoting again. Historically, big relative drops for the railroad group have not been good news for the market. Although the prior two came relatively close to the price bottoms for the rail stocks after the large drops, however, history following 4% declines in railroad stocks relative to the S&P 1500 suggest uninspiring gains, if not declines, over the next few months and little to speak of for the market over the coming year. Yeah, and you got to remember, too, that typically uh, transports are leading indicators for the market, right? Yeah, they are. Because, like you said, they're transporting all of the, these industrial goods. So if, if they are not, if they don't have enough business to transport, then obviously that's a sign, just one piece of information that might say, hey, the economy might be slowing a little bit. Yeah, and the last point in this article, uh, it says, according to the American Association of Railroads, Intermodal traffic volumes are down approximately 7% year over year. That's another data point, but it's not a good one. Yeah. Okay? All right. Second thing I want to kind of talk about is an article from Bloomberg. This is dated July 19th at about 3 p.m. The article is titled, Goldman Says 4,000 Conference Calls Show a Dimmer U.S. Outlook. Okay? So a couple things. It talks about sentiment expressed in public communications by the biggest American companies slumped in June to the lowest level in the year, driven by negative mentions of economic growth, international relations. So it looks at the difference between positive words and negative words. It's giving you the tea leaves. Not a good thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think you know that's part of the part of today's technology is that. There's algorithms out there that trade based on what's said in earnings calls. Absolutely. Right? So they look for these key terms that you just mentioned and they trade 
you know, buy or sell based on, you know, what the CEOs and what the executives are saying in this, in these earnings calls. I mean, you and I both know that a lot of those calls are absolutely scripted. And the thing that we pay more attention to is the Q&A at the end of the call, right? Because that's not as scripted. It's not as prepared. Yeah, it's ad hoc. And then that's where you really get, I think, more of the true answers, Mm -hmm. right? All right. I have... um, Another one. This is from Bespoke Investment Group on July 22nd at noon Eastern Time. And the research piece was titled The Chicago Fed. So they were talking about the Chicago Fed National Activity Index. Okay. And it came in weaker than expected for the third time in the last four months. It was a negative figure overall, Mark, for the seventh month in a row. Okay. Now, this index measures overall economic activity and indicators related to inflation. It's comprised of 85 economic indicators. It covers things like production and income, employment, personal consumption. So here's where the rubber hits the road. While recent readings in the Chicago Fed index have been negative, they haven't been extreme, which suggests that growth isn't cratering, but it's slowing. But every prior streak of seven or more months of negative readings in the index has always coincided with the recession. Right. Another data point that doesn't get me excited. And right. I'll, and again, to put it out there, we don't know when. But of course. it's just this data going back is that there has never been a period where this has happened seven or more times. And there um, hasn't been a recession at some point in the near term. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to throw out the years just so we can cite that. So uh, 69, 73, 80, 81, 90, 01, 07, and now 2019 is where we've had periods of seven straight months of a negative figure on this um, Chicago Fed activity index, okay? Yeah, so it's just, it's interesting because as you mentioned, you know, as we go on from week to week, the negative data kind of continues to build for that negative thesis. But at the same time, we're making all-time highs in the market. So sometimes it's kind of a fear and greed thing where people are like, well, I'm going to ignore this data because we're making all-time highs. Yeah, I mean, it happens, right? And so, you know, you kind of do the reverse in Q4 where we might be sitting there, say, last December, and we're like, this doesn't make sense. There's a disconnect between perception and reality. These stocks, you know, they're too cheap, and the market kept selling off, right? So there's going to be periods where, you know, it might not make sense, but that's just where the momentum is is right now, and the momentum has a bias to the upside. Yeah, and it's almost like a reverse thinking because most people want to add money, um, you know, at market highs, but they don't want to add money during um, corrections or drawdowns. Yep, and that's um, that, you know that, that's a tough part of the psychology, and I think that's where kind of the expertise of an active manager can come into play and help decipher. Is this a time to add or is this a time to cut risk? Yeah, because over, I mean, if you look at the history of market, the markets are always mean reverting, right? Yep. Um, so if, you know, we're in a drawdown of, say, 10%, people get worried and they don't, and they when they want to sell, they don't want to add to it. But, you know, if the overarching theme is still positive and we're just in a little bit of a correction or a drawdown, you know, it, it's harder for people to sit there and say, hey, I'm going to add more money to this money manager or to this different strategy. Yep. Um, so it's just interesting. Yep. 
couple more things. Um, over this past week, there was a Wall Street Journal survey of over 60 economists. The second quarter GDP growth is expected to come in at 1.6%, um, while 2.2% growth is projected for the full year. Okay. Now, the formal data is going to be released uh, tomorrow on the 26th, Mark. Okay. That's for the second quarter GDP. Okay. The other thing I want to throw out there is uh, in that same article, it talks about how um, S&P 500 earnings. So it said, according to FactSet, second quarter S&P 500 earnings are expected to decline. That's a decline at a rate of 2.6%, while revenues are expected to grow 3.8%. If these earnings projections materialize, it'll be the first time since Q1 and Q2 of 2016 that S&P will have reported back-to-back -back earnings declines. So another little data point mm -hmm. that's not in the kind of overall positive column. Yeah, yeah. But then to play devil's advocate too, Matt, after that happened, you know, from you know 2016 on, we've had a pretty good run. Absolutely. And I'd say, you know, some of that coincided with what? presidential election mm -hmm. so what do you think could be in store first half of next year right yeah that's a good point and then uh, i'm going to finalize with just three things that caught my eye in barons so as a reminder to listeners uh barons is a weekly publication by the wall street journal it is uh published on saturdays for people with uh, print subscriptions it uh, reaches their mailbox on mondays and i think it's more of a of a big picture uh kind of viewpoint publication okay couple things that caught my eye. In the up and down Wall Street over this past week, they were talking about um, pension funds. Okay? And on, uh, it says, first, the California Public Employees Retirement System, or CalPERS, recently reported preliminary investment results of 6.7% for its fiscal year ended in June. That's a good read on what major college endowments, which also have a June fiscal year, will report in the coming months goes on to say the Yale endowment led by the influential David Swenson has just 3% of its portfolio in U.S. stocks and the result has failed to participate fully in the huge market gains of the past 10 years. So what's your first response to that, Mark? Well, I think that, you know, schools like Harvard and Yale get put on this pedestal as having the best of the best and even they're not participating in some of the upside that we've seen in the market. So I think people think that people who have high IQ scores correlates with better investment returns. But, you know, articles that I've seen, that's not really the case at all. <laughs> I mean, there's a difference between academia world and real life. And um, I know a lot of smart professors, right? But I want you to tell me how many professors actually manage money day to day. Yeah. There's a difference between academia world and real life. And, you know, what we do for a living is not easy. And I think a lot of these pension funds are taking this more complex, exotic approach to how they're investing money. And sometimes simpler is better. I think that's I think that's true for most of the time is that simpler is better. Simpler is better. I mean, you get a bunch of these funds that invest on 30 different strategies across several different factors, whether it's value, growth, and it's just like... Some are publicly traded, some are, some are privately yeah. held. Yeah, it's usually, and especially for individual retail investors, simpler, I believe, is better. Yeah, I would agree. All right. Um, they also talk about, uh, in that article, one alternative to bottom fishing 
in depressed stocks is to buy the company's bonds. It says the advantage is high yields and greater safety, although bankruptcies and corporate restructurings can lead to sizable losses for bondholders. It goes on to mention a couple of names, uh, and I won't mention them here, that uh, some individual bonds that they think are attractive. But I think the message is, as um, the market is hitting 52-week highs, you know, some of these listers might want to consider not maybe not just the actual common stock, but there might be some good finds in the individual corporate bond world. Yeah. And I think a lot of these issues are overlooked because these big money managers, if it's a $200 million total issue, you know, Vanguard would own that in a hot second. Yeah. They, they, they just can't touch it because right. there'd be no liquidity. Um, another section um, in Barron's, which is the trader section, talks about still one of the bright spots is the U.S. consumer. Okay. It says the U.S. consumer continues to keep the bull market moving forward. Uh, this week saw bank earnings bolstered by consumer lending, retails up strongly, and airlines kept afloat by travelers willing to spend. So I think one of the biggest bright spots for us as the, as the U.S. overall is the fact that our economy is two-thirds led by the consumer. And earnings are up. The job market's still tight. The concern I have is, though, the closer that you get to the presidential election, I feel the um, concern that we're starting to see in the corporate world with uncertainty for them regarding, say, taxation, you're going to have, I think, that eventually the election affect the psyche of the consumer. And in my view, it's time decay between now and in November of 2020. And at what point will we start to see that affect consumer spending habits? And for me, I think you're, we're playing on borrowed time before we start to see that data. We'll see if I'm right. Uh, these podcasts are time stamped per se, but I think eventually we're going to start to see that. Yeah, and we've seen that when we were in Florida a couple of weeks ago for business. I remember we were talking um, to someone down there and she was saying how she has a degree from this university, that university, and she still cannot find a job because labor markets are so tight. So when um, you know we see that just talking to people on a day-to-day -day basis, it kind of confirms these um, economic indicators and readings that come out. Yep. And then the last thing is under the uh, market view section, um, it talks about um, monetary policy hitting a wall. And, um, and I'll quote, Despite global central banks' best efforts, monetary velocity, a.k.a. the money multiplier, the number of times a dollar circulates through the banking system annually has collapsed since the financial crisis as borrowing has stagnated. Before the financial crisis, monetary velocity was between 2.5 and, and 4. It has been below 1 since December of 2009, we now estimate it to be 0.9. The inability of central banks to stimulate borrowing with low rates is the definition of pushing on a string. So this is a, another data point that is telling you they're pushing rates down, but you're not seeing as much money flowing through the monetary system. Yeah. Not another good uh, data, data point. point. Yeah. And sure. that's, uh, that's all I have there, Mark. Okay. Um, so thanks for those, Matt. Um, the next, we're going to move on quickly and discuss uh, the financial planning topic of the week. And this comes from an article titled How Americans Save by Michael Batnick. Um, and this is from his blog titled The Irrelevant Investor. 
So Michael discusses a Vanguard study called How America Saves, where Vanguard did a study on their own defined contribution plans, um, which is just in layman's terms like 401k plans where an employer, an employee can contribute to, to a plan uh, for retirement. And this plan and this study looks at everything from asset allocation of its investors to contribution rates of Americans and much more. Um, so I'm not going to go through the entire article, but I wanted to review some of the highlights that caught my eye. Um, and <clears throat> again, um, there's more than 100 million Americans with a defined contribution plan holding more than 7.5 trillion in assets. And Vanguard did a study on the defined contribution plans on their platform, which has more than 5 million participants. So some of these key findings are listed in this article. So first um, is one of the biggest changes Michael says over the past 15 years is that there's been an explosion of target date funds. So in 2018, 52% of all participants at Vanguard were invested in a single target date fund. They anticipate that by 2023, 80% of all assets at Vanguard will be in an automatic investment program. So for those of you who don't know, a target date fund is a fund designed to get more and more conservative as you approach retirement. So when you first start a 401k, if you haven't selected the individual funds that are available for investment, typically you're going to be automatically placed in one of these target date funds. Um, and the year in the fund name refers to the approximate year when an investor in the fund would retire and leave the workforce. So again, the fund gets gradually shifted uh, to more and more conservative um, as you get closer to retirement. So for example, if you turn 65 in 2055, we'll say, you will most likely be automatically placed in the target date 2055 fund. And I don't know about UMAP, but I believe um, so many people end up in these target date funds is because they never look at their 401k or they um, haven't had a trusted advisor recommend what they should invest in or educate them on their options. Yeah, I mean, the biggest problem that I have with these target date funds is maybe not necessarily for a younger individual, but it's someone who is kind of close to or right at, right at that retirement mark. And let me explain why. So if someone is 65 today and they are in a target date fund, it kind of defaults to XYZ retirement income fund. And if you dig down, these average funds at that 65 years of age are 70% bonds and 30% stock. So the concern that I have is that if someone's taking an income stream or an income withdrawal of 4 or 5% a year, is 30% stock going to be enough of an inflation hedge with where bond yields are at to overcome that withdrawal rate? Exactly. That's the concern I have. Yeah, exactly. Then with bond funds too, if we're, I mean, we haven't been in a huge rising rate environment, but if interest rates are rising, you don't really want to be in bond funds because there's an inverse relationship with interest rates and bond prices. So interest rates go up, bond prices go down. And these funds are holding multiple bonds and, you know, you're just losing principal at that point. And then the second thing that always concerns me is um, a majority of these target date funds are comprised 100% of that fund family's funds. Okay. 
So if you know if you're a listener and you get that 401k statement in the mail and you turn probably to page three or four, you're going to see a full list of the funds that you can choose from, and they're going to have different fund family names. Well, the problem is that if it's um, XYZ's uh, target date fund, they're not going out there and picking different fun families to be a part of that it's yeah. all their own yeah by and design by design so the problem is is you know are you really getting kind of the the best um choices by just defaulting into that target date sometimes the answer is yes sometimes the answer is no. no yeah okay so i think back in episode two um matt and i kind of discussed the um the historical academia notion of gradually getting more and more conservative in your investments as you approach retirement and how a lot of the times that's not necessarily the case. So if you want to hear more on that, check out episode two. Great. The next point that caught my eye was that the median savings rate, which combines employee and employer contributions, has been steady at around 10% for the last 15 years. And I personally believe that 10% is a good starting point just based on the employee's contribution, but I think this number should be way higher when you have uh, it combined with employer contributions and profit-sharing contributions um, and the matches from the employer. Absolutely, and I think the younger you are, the more heavy your contributions have to be with the concern for you know, someone under the age of 40, what social security is going to look like for them down the road. That's a major unknown, right? That's right. So I think um, I'm just going to throw out a very big generalization. If you're under 40, you need to be more predominantly self-sufficient and not be concerned about social security potentially being there. Right. Because it, it might be more needs-based, in essence, what your income is, what you're reporting, I think it's a good rule of thumb just to plan as if you're not going to have Social Security. And if you do, icing on the cake, especially for the younger individuals. Mm -hmm. For sure. Um, The next uh, piece of information that caught my eye was um, Michael referenced a chart that shows participation rates by demographics. So he says there has been a pretty steep drop off in participation for people under 25 years old from 57% in 2014 to 38% in 2017. And he says, I wonder if student loans have something to do with this. And every other age bracket older than 25, um, the participation rate is over 70%, which is great. Um, But I do agree with Michael here that student loans may have something to do with the low participation rate Um, of people younger than 25 years old because we've seen this explosion of student debt over the past 10 years. Yeah, and think about the potential loss of compounding um, earnings and by saving at such a young age. Yeah, I know. So it's unfortunate. It is. Um, But if you fall in this group, seek out someone that can help you with that, you know, because an advisor can help you put together a plan where you're going to have your debt paid off in five or 10 years relative to just servicing the debt and letting it keep ballooning and then you're never going to get rid of it and then you're never going to have enough cash flow extra to contribute to a retirement plan. Perfectly said. So the next uh, piece of information is talking about the average elective deferral rate, um, which is you know how much uh, of your of your earnings are you contributing to the 401k? And he references a chart 
that shows how much people are choosing to save. So the average elective deferral rate was 7% in 2017, which is pretty encouraging. And I agree with Michael when he says that. But he says, let's say a 25 year old is making 50 grand a year and their salary goes up 2% annually and they earn a five they earn 5% a year. By the time they're 65, they can have $600,000 in their account. Assuming they're getting an employer match and that they're saving 10% of their salary, this jumps to 900,000 by age 65. So compound interest takes a while to work its magic, but when it does, the results are extraordinary. More than one third of that 900,000 is added in the last five years. So I know people in America today are very uh, short-term result-driven, but you just have to let it do its thing and just trust the process that if you continue to contribute and as that account grows, the compounding is going to occur very quickly once your balance gets to um, you know, six figures there. Yeah, the way that I like to keep clients motivated is after a written financial plan is created and you have a check Uh, a balance check every year where their portfolio needs to be to stay on track for a goal. It becomes, I think, more tangible. Yeah. And they visually see, Mark, you know, in the last five years, you know, uh, the forecasting on their portfolio going up. I think that sometimes helps keep them focused and disciplined to continue to save, not to tap into that 401k for the wrong reasons, Mm -hmm. uh, withdrawal-wise, to be specific. So I would agree with what you're saying, and I think if someone can sit down, find a trusted advisor, put a proper uh, plan in place where they know every 12 months where they need to be to stay on track for retirement, makes it more tangible, and I think it helps them be more disciplined. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think more people need to start doing that. So we'll wrap up with two questions we had submiss- or submitted from listeners, um, and the first question comes from Matt, and Matt asks... A few episodes back, you had mentioned both risks surrounding next year's election and foreign banking stocks. What is your opinion about using long-dated puts as a means of gaining exposure to these potential market trends? So do you want to start with that or do you want me to take it, Matt? Yeah, why don't you start with just explaining um, briefly option, what's a put, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, exactly. So a put is a type of option, and there's call options and put options. So a call option gives the holder the right, not the obligation, to buy a stock at a certain price. And a put option uh, gives the holder the option to sell a stock at a certain price. So Matt, in this example, I'm just going to use an example um, of Amazon. If you're holding, um, you know, 100 shares of Amazon and it's trading at $2,000 per share right now, Yep. You can buy a put uh, at the $2,000 strike price several months out or a year out sure. to protect your stock that you actually hold. So if Amazon drops from $2,000 to $1,500, you have the right to sell someone 100 shares of Amazon at $2,000. And yep. that kind of protects against your um, long stock that you have in your account. Yep. Um, so I think it's a viable... And there's a cost associated with that. Yeah. Because you're yep. paying someone else to, to assume that risk right. for that specified period of time, mm-hmm. right? Um, so now that you... Uh, the other, other thing I want to say about options is 
it absolutely cracks me up when I see these commercials from all of these online brokers who romanticize options trading like it's super easy, super simple, super fun. And this is a very, very complex area. And it is not for most investors. And I have seen over my almost 20-year career a lot of people blow up their portfolio as they start to dabble into options and then they go down a couple rabbit holes and they don't understand the risks that they're putting their portfolio yeah, through. Yeah, and just to clarify too, um, Matt, obviously we're not making any recommendations on this, but just explaining that it is an option out there for people people to um, protect against a, a market fall. So here's my formal answer for Matt who asked the question. I will say that a lot of the longer dated options most likely have a significant premium priced into them. Especially for a company like Amazon. Oh, yeah. Or he's talking about, you know, the European banks. Um, you know, I think for a lot of uh, people, the perceived risk of some of those banks will most likely be appropriately priced in to the price of the put. Yeah. And so um, I would uh, make a very big generalization and say it might not make sense. Just because the premiums are going to be so expensive. Yeah, and a lot of people can't afford. Yeah, and I'll just go back to premiums. it and say options are extremely complicated and yeah. are not for the average investor. And though you can do that stuff on your own, I would highly recommend that they seek out a professional yeah, if they desire that. Area. Just do your research and and don't just jump into it because you know options are significantly more volatile than just holding stock. Educate um, yourself. I mean, I'm just. Throwing it out there. I mean, the one thing that is not doing uh, a service is I see these commercials, Mark, on Bloomberg and CNBC about how uh, options trading, they're pushing that because it. I think it derives a lot more revenue for these firms than a stock trade does. Yeah. But just selling be, a product. be very, very yeah, careful. Be very careful and do your research before um, you start trading options if you do want to do that. And the next question comes from Joe, and Joe asks, what happened earlier this week with the opening of the China NASDAQ and those crazy gains? So for people that might not know, earlier this week, China launched a new NASDAQ-style exchange called the Star Market. Okay. And it has a list of top Chinese tech companies that are looking to claim their top dog status essentially as the back or the best uh, tech companies in the world. So in my personal opinion, Joe, China did this as a way to fund their own companies, some of which are funded by the Chinese government, to give them a better chance to surpass U.S. tech companies. So the 25 stocks listed on the star had gained an average of 140% by the time the market closed. And this is just in one day. And a quote from a CNN article caught my eye. It says, China has been encouraging its companies to become less dependent on foreign money and technology, a campaign that has intensified during the trade war with the United States. And since the Trump administration blacklisted Huawei, a leading global smartphone maker and 5G network supplier. So what I think you're seeing here, Joe, is a push by... China and Chinese investors to propel or excuse me to propel their own companies above the rest of the tech community across the world. Yeah, I mean a concern for me is just these types of um, uh, movements, even in a given day, 
radical. Immediately is is warning signs, right? So um, I am not a fan of extreme feast or famine scenarios um, because it's very dangerous for the average investor. So that's the best comment I can make is just from afar, just based upon the volatility, caution is required. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, typically from what we've seen, if there's a lot of volatility to the upside, there can be a whole lot of volatility and even more to the downside. So gravity. Um, yeah, but that was, that was interesting earlier this week. So thank you for bringing that up, Joe. Yep. Good question. Um, so that concludes the fifth episode of the independent advisors podcast. Thank you everybody for listening and keep the questions coming. Uh, because remember, we want this podcast to be driven by you, the listener, and we want to put out content that you want to hear about. Um, so thank you again for listening, and we hope you all have a wonderful, safe weekend. Have a great weekend, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors Podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. And also check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. Here you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words, questions, and topics in the subject line to mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com, and we'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.